You've found the Virtually Possible podcast. Join the discussion on future of work, organizational design, and personal growth. Yo rogdot kivanok, which means good morning in Hungarian, as far as I know, and as far as Google Translate says. Good morning to my beautiful friend who is in Hungary. The pod is virtually possible today over Zoom with Karen Cartwright based out of Budapest. I'm finally at this point in my life where I can proudly say that I have been friends with someone for over 20 years. And this person is Caroline. We've met back in our hometown, the tongue twister name of Wocławek, and have stayed friends until the present day, following each other's crazy country moves and life experiences. Caroline and her husband, John, are both teachers. Caroline teaches English and John teaches maths, but they're not your regular teachers, so to speak, because they work in international schools around the world. Out of the UK, they moved to Malaysia for a good few years and have this year returned to Europe and specifically Budapest, Hungary. Are you hungry? <laughs> okay, sorry. And so I'm grateful Caroline is carving out a bit of her time to speak to me about the hot topic of education, its present state, and its further developments. Firsthand inside scoop from someone who for years have been watching school systems around the world and is working very hard on turning those tiny humans into fully fleshed, critically thinking, kind people. Welcome to the pod, Caroline. Hello, everyone. <laughs> We're very thrilled to have you on board. We wanted to start off with a few words on your journey all the way from Poland, from our hometown, through the university, then to the UK, then to Malaysia, now back to Budapest. So if you can give us a little bit of a background of what happened in the last 20 years. Sure, why not? <laughs> Just 20 years. So I studied in Poland. I studied English philology. Uh, for many people, probably a really weird subject because I haven't heard about a similar thing anywhere else in the world, actually. But that's basically a study of English with all the components. So literature, history, applied linguistics and so on. And throughout my studies, uh, my mom always told me, please don't become a teacher. Please don't become a teacher because my mom is one. So what did I do? I did exactly the opposite. When I finished my bachelor's degree, that's when I got my QTS and I went on to doing master's. I loved what I studied. I really did. But apart from being a teacher, I couldn't see myself doing anything else, really. So then I moved to UK and I did what, well, I bet every Polish person started with. I worked at a restaurant in a really tiny village, then moved on to working in a cafe Um, and then after a year of doing that, I thought, oh gosh, I've got master's in education. I did five years at uni, studied really hard, and now I'm basically serving coffee. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's just not what I envisaged my life to be. So I applied to one of the schools, local schools. It was a, a primary school and they had an opening for a HTLA, which is basically higher teaching level assistant, which is like a person who helps the teacher run lessons, mm -hmm. uh, takes small groups of students and works with them, personalizing their learning really. But they didn't have a full-time job for me there. It was more like a volunteering job that they were willing to pay for two two days a week. So that obviously wasn't enough. And then uh, a local college, which is a secondary school, which is kind of like our high school uh, in Poland, I guess, had an opening for a cover supervisor, which is like a, a permanent position within the school. And it's a person who covers loads of different lessons. So one day I would be covering physics, my beloved physics, <laughs> not um the other day I would be covering PE hairdressing because we had a vocational unit there English That's all very useful though oh gosh yes 100% we even had the beauty department which I loved covering <laughs> but it was a, it was a great journey it really was but I think through covering people's lessons I thought that I really wanted to have that ownership of having my own classes having students that I could really influence, not just covering from a sheet that someone else prepared. So I asked at the MFL, well, actually didn't ask, I was asked by the MFL department, which is Modern Foreign Languages, to cover or, or to teach a couple of lessons of German, believe it or not. There you go. I know. 
So I had a few lessons there and then with year nines and with year tens. Did they learn uh, any German, you think? <laughs> sure. Um, I'm not quite sure how, how much you know about education in UK or the way languages are being taught in UK, but it's basically kind of like in Poland. So you go to your German lessons and the majority of the lesson is in Polish. Or in that case, majority of the lesson was in English. So, you know, I had all the basics. I actually went to Germany to do a quick refresher course uh, over the summer with Goethe Institute in mm -hmm. Heidelberg. Highly recommend that course. And yeah, and I did that for around two years. Within that time, I met my husband and I kind of told him that it would be amazing if we could go abroad and teach outside of UK. And actually, it was a perfect time for us because we started feeling really frustrated with educational system in UK. Um, again, one of the big problems, when, which I guess we're going to talk about, is that the majority of the time or the, the huge chunk of your lesson would be devoted to behavior management before you could teach anything or at least the area where we taught. And it was so draining, so draining and so difficult because None of the courses, none of the, you know, studies prepared us for behavior management of students who are so disengaged, so dismotivated, lack ambition. Their, you know, family situation is so horrible that they cannot go even past that in order to, you know, open up and learn. So we were at this point where we thought, okay, we either try abroad or we just quit being teachers because it just got way too much so my husband got a job in Malaysia and we thought brilliant we're just gonna go there and see what it's like and it was like a breath of fresh air completely different style of teaching completely different style of education all of a sudden we had access to these amazing resources technologies softwares platforms and the students were so eager to learn so willing to give uh, you know so to put so much effort parental involvement was so much different so we stayed there originally we went there for two years we stayed six <laughs> Oh my God, it's been six years. I remember yes. trying to get to you two years ago when I was on this crazy trip. I was going on this crazy trip to Thailand, Vietnam, Macau, and then Helsinki, and then France. And I almost made it to Malaysia, but um, it didn't happen. And then I hope, you know, maybe this year, but now you're here. So maybe Budapest. Hopefully. Sure, you are more than welcome to visit us here. You just mentioned... A few very important things, and I wanted to touch upon this before we go into the Malaysian paradise of teaching, because I'm quite interested in this behavioral management part of the, the, the classes that you would normally have to teach. Even though it seems from, I think, the teacher's perspective that that's a, a, quite a big of a, quite a burden to carry, really, if you have to be both a psychologist every time in every class versus um, teach whatever you're an expert in. I quite feel like this will or should be actually maybe more promoted because it seems that students are taught different subjects and different areas, but they're not really taught how to think. They're not really taught how to behave, how to deal with life. I guess it's... Um... You know, when you study a, a, a subject, so for example, my, my husband studied astrophysics and then went to teach physics. Throughout the course I of your study... He's, he was teaching maths, but I guess he's teaching physics. No, he is teaching maths, actually. Ah, so I don't because remember correctly. <laughs> absolutely. It's just in UK, when you do your PGCE, which is like your teaching course... Uh, you can do it in, well, for him, he could do it either in physics or in maths. Uh, technically, he can teach both subjects, but I think his forte is maths. And that's what he really enjoys. Okay. <laughs> so during the course of studies, even, you know, at my university, um, I don't remember a single subject that would prepare you for that part of your job which appeared to be a huge part. And I know it's the same in Poland. And I know it, you know, I know it's the same around the world. You get students in your class, you can have students who are really ambitious, high achieving. You've got your middle ground, you know, kind of like, I guess, where I fell when 
I was a student. I was kind of, you know, I was never disruptive, but I was never like the best out of the best. And this is the, you know, this is the group of students who just plod along, you know, they do their work. They don't do anything above because they don't have that motivation. No one really cares. And then you've got that group of students. Yes, but, but it's important to understand why. So these are the students that come to your lessons already with a huge baggage, you know, either from their personal life, family life. And the area where we worked was so deprived, so rural, that the majority of the female students that I spoke to at the time, they couldn't see any other options than getting pregnant, getting the money from the government for having children. Mm -hmm. And then just working at Tesco. And again, nothing wrong with working at Tesco's. There is place for everyone in here. But it was just so heartbreaking because there were those students where you could see their potential. or You could see that they were good at something, but they couldn't see past that. They couldn't see past their own problems and their own limitations. And there were no support systems in place to actually help these students because you've got... 24 other students that you need to deal with and you need to make sure that they get their grades and that they get to GCSEs and they get to A-levels. And and because in UK, uh, I'm not quite sure what's the situation now. I'm guessing it's very much the same. Pay was uh, performance related and you would be judged on your A-level classes. So if, the, if you didn't hit your predictions, that someone predicted like, five years, well, four years ago, that someone at A-levels is going to get B or at GCSEs is going to get B, then you would be marked down. And as a teacher, that would mean that next year you wouldn't get a pay rise. So you would worry about the students in your class that could get those those grades and you would be pushing them and pushing and pushing, mm-hmm. you know, and just completely, sometimes completely forgetting about the rest because you didn't have the capacity to do that. So then the the part of the behavior management, was it some kind of counseling in groups? I, I, I guess that doesn't really work well. Well, there was nothing like that. There was no preparation for behavior management. Mm-hmm. So all you did, you would start a job, very quickly realize, oh gosh, I need to find different ways of managing these students' behaviors so that everyone in the classroom can learn and everyone in the classroom can feel safe. And you would do it on your own in your personal time, looking through internet, podcasts, websites, reading articles. Sometimes if your school had a little bit more money, they would send you on a course or they would invite someone over to talk to you about strategies, or you would collaborate with other teachers and see, well, majority of the time you would collaborate with other teachers and see what works for them and try to replicate that in your own teaching. Obviously, it looks differently for secondary and primary. In primary, you would do the, okay, I'm counting to three, and on three, we're absolutely silent, or, you know, some sort of clapping or a bell. Imagine doing that with a 14 or 15-year-olds. Mm-mm-mm. I don't think that would work. Wow. So that was pretty much an ongoing issue with every class starting. Every teacher had to bring them about, about again. I guess maybe we were similar when we were teenagers, but I don't remember as being so crazy disruptive. I think also just we, we were constantly disheartened by, by the reality of living in Poland. So no one had the energy to even try and steer some trouble at school. Uh, but yeah, maybe it's just... It was just our weird experience. But it seems that teenagers right now have a little bit more energy that is very forceful. And if it's not managed properly, it actually has a negative impact on other classmates and and prevents them from being able to learn and, and achieve new stuff. So that's, you know, part of the problem. The other part is that, can you imagine in Poland being naughty in a class? You wouldn't only hear it from the teacher himself, but also from the head teacher and then from your parents again. I feel like there was more respect towards teachers, at least in Poland, you know, because that's what we know from being learners ourselves. And I think the values have also changed. The the family values you see, at least where we worked in the UK, and I keep on repeating that because it was a huge, huge factor on the cohort of the children that we got and the problems that we were facing. You would get these families with mothers who had 
three different partners, children with each of those partners, and and the neglect that you could feel and that you were facing, the neglect of these children was huge, absolutely huge. So again, diff- just different values, I guess. Yeah, and I guess to some extent they were looking to school being some sort of shelter for them and some sort of place of, of calm and, and silence and just a place of safety. Somehow they were also not able to express it correctly. So I guess they, they were trying to express something that they were needing something, but they were expressing it through causing trouble. Absolutely. If you look at the Maslow's pyramid or hierarchy of needs, you see that at the very bottom, you've got the basic needs, like the emotional needs, the safety, the social interactions before you reach the peak when it's the realization that you can be the best, you know, you you can achieve more. But in order to get there, you've got like five or four different levels to go through. And if one of those needs is not fulfilled, there's no way you can get to the top. Mm, yeah, that's a very sad picture, but also very realistic. And the reason why I wanted to talk to you, actually, because maybe we can start talking about this in, in a bit, because we are in this weird year and we are thinking, I'm, I'm actually, I'm thinking at least a lot about the future of education and the future of learning for adults. But obviously, you know, we also spoke about this offline, the impact this year and quarantines or lockdowns and remote teaching has on children and also the experience that I see my nephews are having it's quite petrifying if I think about it and I worry about them a lot and I worry about you know the future generation of people that are coming out out of schools that are going to go to universities hopefully or find you know some kind of vocation and I just want to make sure that as we're trying to, you know, build businesses and make money, we don't forget that there's a whole generation of people we need to take care of to at least help them get out of this state of mind of confusion or disengagement or lack of ambition so that they really are able to, to get to the top of that pyramid at some point. So let's go back to the point where you guys decided to move. So that that burden of having to deal with so many psychological issues of the students and lack of support from the school system and the school management, let's call them, that caused you to finally make the call to move to Malaysia. And maybe we can quickly also talk about what kind of schools you guys are working at because they're not typical. It's not, it was not a typical Malaysian regional school. It's an international school. So if you could talk about uh, the, the company basically that employs you, the, the reality of Malaysian life? So uh, we relocated to Malaysia. We taught at one of the big international schools there, which was a part of a chain of schools run by a company, I guess. Mm, and it seems that many schools are organized at, um, across the world. Generally, International schools are divided uh, into for-profit, so the schools that are owned by someone else that's kind of originally pumped the money into the school and now the school is profiting that person, and the non-for-profit schools, which means that all the money from the fees from the parents go back to the school, the resources, the the facilities, the, the pay for the teachers and the management that manages the school. We worked for a for-profit school, uh, as I said, Big Malaysian International School. As I mentioned before, it was a completely different way of working. First of all, the school had amazing resources. (laughs) I'm guessing because of the money, right? Mm -hmm. But also the PD for staff, so professional development for staff was on a so much higher uh, level than we've ever experienced in the UK. My school actually had a dedicated time on Friday afternoon where we didn't have any lessons for two hours, but we had time to do courses, webinars, collaborate with other teachers, have all your uh, meeting for professional development, um, any sort of workshops uh, with external uh, providers and so on. So that was absolutely amazing. I can safely say that I became a better teacher by being at that school for sure because I had the time and opportunities to 
to develop. So resources is one thing, but then the other thing is that you've got so much stuff, support staff, admin staff. We even had digital coaches, so designated people that would help you if you wanted to implement any sort of technology into your lessons to enhance it or augment your uh, your teaching. So that was absolutely amazing as well. And then the next thing is that uh, the students that you get are from very wealthy families predominantly. So these are students who already have got motivation because they can see their hardworking parents running companies, being CEOs or royalties or, or whatever. So very, the majority of those students were aiming at places like Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, you know, really big universities. And then the other thing was that the, the curriculum was very comprehensive. Obviously, we had to teach to the British curriculum. But because we were an international school, we could kind of um, change that curriculum and interweave some skills into it, which was amazing because that's what the employers nowadays want. Sorry to uh, interrupt you. So what was, for instance, what you were uh, teaching outside of the regular curriculum? So in... In our curriculum, we had space for skills like thinking differently, being resilient, asking questions, problem solving, a wider school life, team building. Um, so you would teach your normal English lesson, but through but within that lesson, you would have opportunities for students to be creative, to think outside the box, to collaborate with other students, to um, ask questions, to solve problems and so on and so forth. On top of that, we had amazing set of CCAs, which is cross-curricular uh, activities, mm -hmm. uh, which are kind of activities outside of school. So any sport activities. Uh, we worked very closely um, with charity organizations in Malaysia. We were providing help for refugee camps from, for example, Burma. So a lot of extra work that the students had opportunities to do. Mm -hmm. And that was absolutely amazing. And that, that just creates such a different learning environment and teaching environment. And it felt like, you know, when people always say, oh, remember about work-life balance, make sure that you always generate some time for yourself. And you feel like, mm, are you joking me? How am I supposed to do that? Actually, there we could, like, it was so possible to leave work at, for example, four and be done with planning and resourcing and marking and actually have time for yourself, for your families, for your partners. Uh, whereas in UK, very often we would start work, let's say we would leave house at eight, come back at five and be marking work till seven and then, you know, try to do a bit of planning. So different. <laughs> So that's wonderful. It seemed like you guys have a wonderful experience. I also remember talking to you many times and when you were mentioning, you know, living in a pretty nice area, having a pool and having the time to really enjoy the pool at some point um, in the day. And I think it's important to, to mention that there's a lot of work that goes into a teacher's job that we don't think about because it's not the, the part of the work that is student facing all of the planning, all of the marking, like you, like you said, that all takes so much time, right? That you have to do outside of your regular classes. But I assume that at some point you guys decided that enough is enough and you decided to swap the easy, well, not easy, but to swap the comfortable Malaysian life for the harsh European winter and came back home. So what made you decide to come back home? Or, I mean, at least come back to Europe, uh, as in, I, I imagine John would love to move to Poland, as he many times have mentioned, loving our country, but we obviously are uh, not supporting that idea. <laughs> um, yes, so Malaysia was great. And don't get me wrong, every school has got its problems. And, and my school had uh, its problems as well. But that wasn't the, the, the reason for us coming back closer to home. Um, I guess at uh, some point in your life, your priorities change. 
and all that traveling that came with living abroad. And Malaysia is a great base for traveling across Southeast Asia and Asia actually in general. I think that, and that, that was great, but all of that traveling we thought uh, was taking time away from actually having quality time and relationships with our families. And we both have a set of, you know, nephews and a niece. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just wanted to be a part of their life. And even with, you know, having Zoom, Google Meet, Skype, uh, WhatsApp, and so on, those relationships on the line are completely different to what we wanted to have. So our thinking was that if we move to Europe, then at least, you know, the time zone is uh, more in our favor and there is more chance to actually be there for birthdays, you know, important moments where you could just pop in for a weekend and so on. We didn't want to sacrifice teaching. So we went for another international school and then COVID happened. And even though we're in Hungary, I still haven't seen my family. (laughs) So yay, great. Yeah, I guess no one, no one's able to really travel right now and see their loved ones, which is very sad. But at least the time zone helps so you can stay in touch with your mom a little bit more frequently. And uh, for sure, she's, she appreciates that. So throughout all of that experience that you had moving through the different schools and, and different countries, what are your views on the educational system and the system that you've worked with um, today and What do you think was not working well before COVID was okay, um, even though you had some challenges? And And I guess I wanted to see if you have noticed something drastically changing because of COVID and how you are now forced to teach all your students. A big thing for us is that even though we work with uh, students from very privileged families, there is still that push for engagement. Students are easily disengaged, dismotivated. um, And I think that was even more exacerbated during COVID because of the whole uncertainty. So can you imagine, you know, asking teachers, you know, are there going to be A-levels? Are we going to have the, the exams? And the teachers, all we could say is like, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know before someone else higher than us decides. Mm-hmm. So all that, all that uncertainty meant that many students were just so um, tired of the whole situation, tired of all the uncertainty around it, that they just became disengaged. Uh, the motivation dropped. And you could see that, especially on, you know, on Zoom, where some of the students just wouldn't answer questions and you would have to turn their, uh, well, ask them to turn their cameras on constantly. Oh, would they uh, not turn the cameras on? Was that not a given? No. Oh, interesting. Hmm. No, not necessarily. Um, so I've seen a mem somewhere where um, uh, there is a teacher saying like, Chris, are you there? Chris, are you with us? And it's kind of like a spiritual situation, you know, when you're asking ghosts if they are with us. That kind of, that's what it felt like. We now laugh that the majority of the time, what we used to say is like, please turn your camera on. Please turn your microphone on. Yeah, and that was, that was our reality for, um, for quite a long time. And, and I feel like for, for many students, that must have felt horrible. I remember how stressed I was before our A-levels, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where for us, it was like to be or not to be. You're going to get to a good university or you're going to not get to a good university. What are you going to do if you don't get there? Yes, yeah, stay and die in our hometown, which is just the saddest place on earth. <laughs> I love it. I love that place. I I can't bear myself to even go back there, uh, to be very honest. But anyway, yeah, so initially that was a big problem with people not knowing how to handle the change through teaching remotely, but also studying remotely. So nobody, I guess that that was the, the crazy part of that switch was that it happened instantly. And when you're an adult, you at least have some kind of understanding on how to deal with technology and you understand that this is you know unless you do your job you're not getting paid but I think it's much harder for a teenager to understand that well 
if I don't really put in my best effort right now, it might screw up my whole life. It might screw up my whole future. And also, but also understandably, they must have been quite frustrated because no one's ever prepared them for that switch and has never told them that, oh, actually, you know, in next year, you're going to spend your whole year sitting in your house, looking into a screen and trying to figure out all the subjects and then take A-levels online. Or maybe they won't happen. We don't know. It's like, we can't tell you. Exactly. And now think about it. So that's, we're talking about, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, even year olds or 18. And now try the same kind of scenario, but in primary school, mm. where those students are just getting used to the technology, just getting used to the, you know, my previous school was working on Google Suit. So Google Docs and um, Google Sheets and, um, and so on. So now, you know, in primary, we do we did a lot of work to initially to get them up to speed with technology, how to open a document, where to find the information, how to open the timetable, how to upload your assignment, how to respond to comments on your assignments and so on. I think that was much easier in secondary because they had years of practice, especially in my previous school. We, we were, as I said, we, we were very privileged and technology was integrated part of our teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. But in primary, uh, that was so much harder. So then you rely a lot on the parents, but the parents had their own jobs and their own problems to solve. And as you said, it just happened Like one day everything was fine. Well, not fine. We knew the situation was bad, but one day we were going to school and then in the evening we're getting this email saying, actually tomorrow you're not going to go to school. Well, we're not going to have lessons, but you're going to have an all day to prepare for this online learning experience. And then from the next day after that, you're going into full online teaching mode. And that was that. At least they gave you a day though. So (laughs) That is true. That is absolutely true. Yes. I, I, bet, I bet in Poland, there was no notice. I bet back home, they just were told at 6 p.m. tomorrow at 8 a.m. You're going to start doing online teaching. And from what my sister told me, the type of online teaching that is practiced back home is mostly that the teachers send students PDFs and tell them, well, go through the PDF. And then if you have questions, you can email back the questions or that based on the PDF, You have to write this or that kind of essay. And maybe that works when, like you said, you're 16, but my 11 year old nephew just gets frustrated. And then he also has a bit of a temper. So then he just throws the toys out of the pram and says, I'm not doing any of this because this is ridiculous using those exact words. So he's very eloquent, but not very much in for going through PDFs instead of being actually taught and and spend time with okay sorry that was a bit of a rant as always i love my rants that i have to edit them all out actually um i guess it's also important to add that i think for the whole situation we realized or i think teachers knew that uh, for a long time or have known that for a long time but i think many of the parents realized how important social role the school plays in our lives mm-hmm. and i remember when um, we finally started having assemblies, whole school assemblies on Zoom. And the first one, I think it wasn't actually well thought through and uh, all the kids could see each other. Oh my gosh, the excitement on those faces and people just waving to each other and just wanted to have a chat, you know, they just wanted to have those bonds again, to to have these relationships with people. It was just overwhelming. And then we went on to a webinar mode where you cannot actually see the participants <laughs> you can only see the uh, the person who talks but I think it was important for us as a school to see that even though we had to carry on with the curriculum yeah we simplified it we slowed down we chunked it it was important to build in those times for social interactions with students so they could tell you about at least in primary they could tell you about your day they could tell you how you how they feel what they did show some some artwork that they've been doing at home that was really really important and very very beneficial for the students so i'm thinking about what you've mentioned so far as the engagement piece, the motivation piece, 
that is super important and has been has been suffering a little bit even pre-COVID. And then COVID has just exacerbated that problem. But then on the other hand, as many people also mentioned that that realization of how important social interactions are, and especially in this formative time for younger kids, not having any of that is problematic, but it's not about the fact that, you know, parents don't spend time with the kids, but it's the peer-to-peer relationship. It's the teacher role, right? The teacher's role is super important in every kid's development. They are this outside, that external entity that is all-knowing and is super, and that you look up to. Like this is, you know, so many, so many of us, I think when we were younger, we were hoping that our head teachers or, you know, teachers in primary school will become our best friends and, you know, and to be deprived of that unannounced can be a huge problem. Not to mention if, you know, the the household is struggling as well, right? Like you said, especially all of those families in the UK and well, also back home or anywhere in the world, really, where, like we said, the school becomes your ultimate place of shelter and, and your ultimate escape. Was there anything else that you saw was quite uh, visible in terms of trends pre-post-COVID and how things are right now? It's hard to say because I'm, I'm trying to f- think globally, you know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think like what are the trends. Audience. <laughs> I'm trying to think what is it that we struggled with uh, and we struggled with many things. Don't get me wrong. The fact that we are an international school, it didn't mean that we didn't have our own problems. We did many, but different school. There's no point to talk about those because I don't think many other schools could relate to that. But I think if we're talking globally, if I could just try to think of one thing across the world, I would say definitely COVID showed even more inequalities in education. Even that article that you sent to me, you know, and that um, interview with, I think it was Justin Reich. Ah, yeah, Justin Reich, yeah. If I'm saying his name correctly. I'm really sorry if I butchered it. This was the, um, yeah, failure to disrupt by Justin Reich, who's a professor at uh, MIT, I believe. Yeah, it's a, he's an MIT professor. And, and actually, he was brought to me by the Octomo guys that we had on the podcast, because we were also talking about, you know, the struggles of adult learning. And then they mentioned that article, that, that book and, and his work, But sorry, I cut you off. So you were saying in that book. Yes, he mentioned that uh, education is shaped by inequality. And that is so, so true. I think I can safely say that, you know, in Poland, uh, in UK, education has been a sector that's been underfunded, understaffed, you know, not appreciated for years. Bringing now situation like COVID, where all, all of a sudden you need to be at the top of your game, at the top of your resources and have the students confident with using technology. It's just like kind of, you know, trying to magically create this thing from thin air that doesn't exist and doesn't even have the foundations to exist. So I think if we were to pinpoint just one problem like across the world, that would have been definitely it. And as I said, I'm, I've been very privileged to work in really well-financed schools. But because of that, I can see those disparities even more because I know what it was like to be taught in Poland as mm. a learner myself. And I know what it was like to teach in UK where you had to fight for any sort of additional resources or even a printer. And I know what it's now like when you've got everything available and served to you almost like a silver platter. Mm. It's just sad. So that inequality, like you said, is even more visible today than before because everyone is struggling. I think this is so crazy if you think about the fact that not all students have laptops, right? Not all students have access to stable Wi-Fi. And the assumption was that everyone does. And so we just get people on Zoom and we do it, you know, as if nothing happened, but that's not the reality. So have you heard from maybe your other teacher friends of how this has been resolved for students that are unable to access those devices because of, let's say, financial struggles and has that been in some way solved for? 
has anyone been helping them to get laptops or get anything to work with? Uh, no, that's the short answer. I've heard of cases in Germany, for example. I've got a friend who lives in Germany near Bremen. And she said that the initial response from the school was that they were sending kind of like worksheets, I guess, in post. No, that's students. very German. That's a very German thing to do. Send everything by post. My favorite thing is when you, if you're trying to deal with any bureaucratic entity, you send them an email and they respond by letter, which is just, <laughs> I think the header sh should always say, welcome to Germany, the land of confusion. But anyway, sorry. So, so your friend mentioned that, yes, that was a very inadequate way to deal with it. Have they then moved on to a more modern way of solving that problem or just kept on posting stuff to people i am not quite sure i think the last thing that she mentioned was that they were trying to move online so into zoom again but again assuming that all the students have got some sort of device phone laptop ipad or tablet and a stable wi-fi but i'm thinking of for example situation in poland so that it's the same kind of problem. But what is the response from the Ministry for Education? Let's just lower the standards for A-levels. That's going to solve the problems. It's oh, dramatic. So, you know, different countries, different way of solving problems. Um, I've listened to a podcast, actually, from these two Polish guys. I'm not quite sure if you're familiar. The podcast is called Rock and Boris. They basically talk about loads of different things, actually, from films to education to uh, games and so on and so forth. But one of the episodes was also about, you know, what the education currently looks like in Poland with regards to COVID situation and so on. And they were saying that there was this idea of actually, uh, well, A, using television to broadcast lessons. And we know how that works, oh right? My only in Poland, only in Poland ideas like that can even be brought to the table. That was embarrassing. I saw some of those lessons. It made me feel embarrassed as a teacher, but also felt sorry for these teachers because, again, they were trying something completely new, unprepared. So, and that was really weird, really weird to watch as well. And then the other one was to use radio, but that hasn't worked either. Yeah. I mean, I think we're a little bit at loss with how to solve such a tremendous problem of delivering education and knowledge to people that are supposed to pay for our retirement because that's <laughs> that's how things work right now and so it's insane to hear that we will be distributing knowledge via radio although i have to say that podcasts to an extent are a wonderful way to learn but they are only a good way to learn when you're i think learning about something additional, not when you have to build the foundational knowledge of, of anything. And so it's very difficult in any form when there's no interaction because you, you have no way of asking questions back or hearing other people talk about things, which I think is also very helpful. And it saddens me to hear that there is no solution to those issues and that there's no united front coming from, let's say, the government or the ministries of education to really tackle this, especially the basic problems of not even having access to devices, which I anyway think is dreadful that you would ask a student to sit on their phone for seven hours of the day on this tiny screen and then watch someone present information and toggle between different screens, I guess, as well which um, is not great for like, your cognition or, or generally for, for your uh, physical health. So I guess... Absolutely. I think it's exactly as you mentioned. So, you know, t television, radio, brilliant. But I think people are forgetting that a huge part of education, if we are trying to educate next generations is that not only gaining knowledge in a sense of uh, content, but also gaining understanding. And how do you gain understanding? By collaborating with other people, by checking for understanding through questioning. How are you meant to do that on TV? How are you meant to do that through the radio? That's just insane. Our country is insane. So th that doesn't surprise me that brilliant, quote unquote, ideas like that came out of our country because we've had so many failures in the last decade that just 
adds another one to it. Obviously, what you're saying makes sense that without the ability to talk through, question what you're hearing, and then even question your own thinking, and then be reassured that this is normal. This is how you build an understanding or you build concepts in your head. That just leaves them so alone. It's really tragic. Absolutely. I'll give you my own example. So after listening to one of your podcasts, you mentioned Joe Rogan. I was like, oh, brilliant. Off I go onto Spotify. Click, click, click. And his podcasts are long and they are all in English, obviously. So I had to really tune in. And then there were a couple of times when I thought, okay, I am completely missing the point in here. I have no idea what they're talking about. They're constantly making references, you know, political situation. And so what do I do? After, I came, after my husband came back from work, I just questioned him. I'm like, oh, look, I've listened to this amazing podcast. What do you think about this? What do you think they meant by saying this? And then kind of through a mutual conversation, that's where we both got, and well, I got the understanding Mm -hmm. of what was actually happening. Now, I try to put that in terms of, you know, our students, if they just listen to our voice, it's like kind of having a lecture all the time, just people talking at you without checking whether what they spoke about you understood or whether you had a chance to put it in practice and get a feedback on that practice. I, I just don't see it working. Yeah. Yeah. Lectures are a great form of delivering content when that foundation is built up, when you're a student, when you're an adult that can make sense of what other people saying on your own. And obviously a lot of times it's wrong, but at least you're able to go through that process. But then you also need that feedback loop. Like we are so doomed as a humanity being isolated. We cannot function like this. I just wonder if there are any you know, good lessons maybe that came out of that insane time for you as a teacher that you could share for not only the listeners who are just curious, but I was thinking, you know, for people who are parents today and what should they be looking out for in how they interact with their kids, how they watch over how the kids are learning today and how they can hopefully still support them in some way, or maybe work with the community of teachers and other parents to to help those who are struggling. John Hattie, who is an educational figure, he mentioned that education is kind of like a triangle and all those points need to work together as the teachers, the parents and the students. And that communication needs to be open. So whatever the school is doing during the COVID time, parents need to be kept in the loop. There is this idea of, you know, kind of engaging the parents into the learning process. So we talk about upskilling the students when it comes to technologies and so on. But the parents also need to be upskilled if they are to help the students at home for however long the situation is going to last. They need to have a basic understanding how to access the document, how to access certain videos, how to access assignments. Again, we're coming back to communication. That communication needs to be open all the time. And and that's the only way we'll see it working. And when it is working, it's brilliant. And you can see students' progress. We could see that even before the COVID situation, when the parental involvement is there and, and the parents are willing to help at home, especially like with me being an EAL teacher, I could see progress of these students just rocketeering. We would get sometimes students with zero English at our school or very, very little English. And with the help of the parents and everything that we were doing at school to support these students through the EAL um, withdrawals but also during the lessons and by any sort of other specialist support you could see the the students progressing beautifully and 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 very very quickly can you just tell us what eal is sure uh so eal is teaching english as a uh, as an additional language okay and that was my predominant role at school where i worked yeah, we, I just wanted to make sure that everyone understands it because even, you know, as we were talking and you've mentioned a few things, I just realized how you get the understanding of how everyone working in their different industries have their own language and abbreviations. And, and I'm definitely not that well versed. So thanks for explaining it to me <laughs> and others. Yes as well Um, please stop me whenever you want me to clarify anything because I'm very much aware of the fact that 
I've, I've worked in education for a number of years now. So sometimes the abbreviations that I use for me is, is just something very much like, oh yeah, well, well, you know, you know what it is. So there's no point to clarify, but I, uh, yes, you're absolutely right that not everyone will know that. Yeah. And you also happen to have a husband who's also a teacher. So I imagine that your language by now is very much in tune with what you guys are doing and you only speak to each other in abbreviations <laughs> or <Yes>. hopefully not. <laughs> One of the positive things that we've also noticed, or maybe I've noticed, is that some students, especially with certain learning difficulties, who were struggling with staying on task, actually benefited with being online because there was so much less destruction coming their way. So they were really able to focus and organize themselves. They needed a bit of help to start with to organize themselves. But once they got that idea, they were very good and proactive and accessing assignments and, and all the work. But it's always about that communication. Whatever you do, I it's so, so, so important. When you look across the board and maybe you know compare your experience with John, do you guys see that students generally were able to keep up with this change and have, you know, after the first, let's say, wave of weirdness, they've adjusted and we can be hopeful that they will be okay? It's, the question is very interesting because I feel like we, when we were in Malaysia, the lockdown um, started for us in March and it lasted till June. So it's like half of March, April, May, June. So three and a half uh, months. Since coming to Budapest, the school that John currently works, I, I am not working there yet, hasn't closed at all mm -hmm. they've got some uh, restrictions that came just last month where everyone above the age of 14 has to be on remote learning but everyone else which means uh year seven eight and nine plus the whole primary is still carrying on as normal mm -hmm. so it's difficult to say because i feel like three and a half months and then the students had a long summer break That was doable. Mm -hmm. I am not quite sure what would it be like to work with exactly the same kind of students now that I know that in Malaysia, they are back to lockdown. So the schools are closed. They had um, maybe few weeks where they opened. That was very much about building those relationships again, building routines, getting students up to speed with technologies and so on. They, were, they went into lockdown again. So that might be very interesting to see What is the motivation of students now? What's their engagement? I haven't heard anything negative when I speak to my colleagues from, from Malaysia, but I know that everyone is both teachers, parents, and students. I feel like um, they're at the end of their capacity. I would say mental capacity because uh, it, it's just really draining because on the top of the fact that they now have to teach online or carry on teaching online, They also cannot leave Malaysia. And the majority of these families are from UK. So we're a long way, uh, you know, from their families, from their loved ones. So it must be really, really difficult time for them. And I do feel, mm. I do feel for them. Yeah, I guess everyone is in a very similar situation in that sense that they don't get that break from whether this is the home surrounding or the same place that they're at and, and they don't get that mental break and be able to switch off and, and change for a little bit to get some recovery. So that is for sure a big, a big problem. You mentioned that the school in Hungary in Budapest that John is working for is uh, perfectly open. How is the experience right now? Maybe you can speak for him for a little bit. <laughs> I think they're doing what they can, both the teachers and the parents and the students. I think they would prefer to be at school. It's, it's really weird because John will have, like for example, lesson one uh, with year sevens or year eights in person. And then he'll have to jump on to Microsoft Teams to teach online and then jump out of that and have another lesson in person or like two lessons and then jump back online. So it's kind of, it, there's a lot of adjusting and, and, and I feel now more than ever, teachers and, and students need to be very, very flexible and they have to adjust to that fast-paced way of learning, I guess. When I spoke to teachers before, some of us have really enjoyed 
teaching online, some of us absolutely hated it because it meant changing completely the way you would normally do things. And now imagine being a teacher for the last, I don't know, 20, 25 years where you've got your routines, you've got your scheme of work, you've got the way you do things. Here you do adjust because every cohort of students is different, but you've got these systems that you know have been tested and you know they work. Now all of a sudden, they won't work online. So it was, yeah, it's just a big revolution for everyone to even adapt their curriculum. And like you said, your, their, their teaching habits to a new format. What was your experience? Did you like it? I didn't mind. It was hard to be on screen for eight hours a day from a physical point of view. I know some of my friends, for example, had these um, like screen induced headaches Mm-hmm. when they had to go off for like a whole day because they just couldn't handle it. I didn't have that, but it did make me more tired than normal. I think for language teachers in general, being online is more difficult because you rely a lot on communication, which means online that you need to either unmute the students yourself or ask them to unmute themselves before they say something, which disrupt the flow of discussion. So then you try to augment that with, for example, Flipgrid, which is like a platform where students can record their videos when they speak on the certain subject, and then people can comment on that or record their videos with response to that and so on. Or you try to use Padlet, which is like this uh, online platform where you can have a, a discussion where people put their opinions and you can respond to those and so on. But it's not the same. Mm. It's not the same. I had to organize myself mm-hmm. I really did. Uh, so that I would get up at a certain time, do my own things, then start the lessons, then give myself, for example, two hours for admin and checking assignments and so on. Then do a bit on my leadership because I was a middle leader uh, in Malaysia and then try to close the computer and really have that work-life balance because it was so much easier just to keep on working mm-hmm. and have everything picked off from your to-do list. And then you would look at the watch. It was like eight or nine. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a big problem. Fran and I talked about this on her podcast about people struggling with being able to switch off because they don't have the motivation to do anything else, especially because there's not much to do. Also now it being winter in Europe, the options are even more limited because you cannot spend a lot of time outdoors. And so people are just spending time working more. And then I guess that this is a thing that worries me a lot in that sense. And regardless of whether this is, you know, in business or not, but mostly in business is that I hear CEOs saying, Oh, that's amazing. The productivity is through the roof. It's really, it's really going well for us. And it's all predicated on the assumption that this is a temporary thing because we, in the long run, all need to take a break and we we need to balance it out. And I just worry that we're going to have, you know, next year, a wave of burnout or wave of actually maybe even more physical um, health issues because people have been exposed to so much. I'm not, I always laugh that we're all going to die from Wi-Fi cancer, but I'm just saying like, just being in, being in front of the screen for so long constantly is very troubling. I think, I guess your experience also just confirms that you cannot be sitting online for so long. It disrupts your circadian rhythm as well, a ton. Yeah, maybe the positive take from it is that, you know, I remember having... Uh, my own A levels, and one of the questions was that, or oh, you know, the verbal part of English exam, uh, when we had little topics and we had to talk about that topic for like five minutes. I remember till this day that my topic was, will robots ever take over uh, teachers' jobs? And it was like a discourse, so you know, like a couple of points for yes, couple of points for no, and so on. And I think the positive thing coming from this situation is that I think we now know it will not happen. Uh, because of that social factor that's so important. And I think you've spoken or we spoke about that 
part of, you know, educating yourself as an adult or, you know, it's the same for the kids is that sometimes you need that guide who will show you, okay, this is how you do it. Now let's do it together. Now you do it on your own. It's so much harder to do it online, very often impossible. So yeah, a positive teachers will always have a job. And when we were talking about uh, robots and AI and all of that futuristic stuff, then Joe Rogan is your best friend because he's obsessed with all of that. So you can definitely find more of his bits on on how robots are. Well, not maybe robots, but oh, he's actually obsessed with aliens and how aliens oh. are here and how aliens are somewhere in our lives, but they don't make themselves known. But one last thing before we maybe start wrapping this up. Could you share your thoughts on the future of education and what you think are the important components that people should be looking out uh, to address? And if there's, you know, if there are big issues that maybe we can somehow start working on, um, especially in communities where we are trying to create tools and and software and services for businesses, but maybe they somehow can be also directed towards the younger generation. I think the governments need to actually start putting more money into education. If we ever were to have these inequalities um, diminished, I look at the students at international schools and I think to myself, oh my gosh, the start in life that they've got, how far ahead they are already compared to some of the state schools across, you know, many different countries. As a teacher myself, it's hard to, you know, certain approaches, certain things cannot be built bottom up. They have to be top down approach. Mm -hmm. They have to be from people who are in power, who have those budgets uh, to support the schools and to support these these families that that need it the most. And then the next thing is that um, I was quite lucky that my school paid so much attention or put so much emphasis on the teachers being educated and having time for PD and so on. But I know that I'm one of the lucky ones. Uh, I know that many teachers had to find this information or educate themselves a, in a very, very quickly and B, using their own money and C, using their own time. It's just building that time, I guess, into the, the school day for the teachers to actually have the opportunities for them to, to develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, we'll always have a problem. And there are so many available sources, you know, now you've got the podcast, but you also have got loads of amazing websites and, and Twitter is full of great advice on, on different strategies for teaching, uh, how to address the students who are disengaged, how to use different online platforms and so on. Just finding the time to do that. This is, I think, the first time I'm hearing anyone saying only good things about Twitter and really praising it for valuable content and not trolling. I'm glad to hear that, at least in that sense, Twitter is serving people in a good way. Believe me, it took me many years, many years to say anything positive about Twitter, but not because I didn't see... Uh, you know, amazing people posting things in there. But it's just that it's so fast paced. Mm. You refresh the feed and you've got like hundreds of new tweets. And it's just like... I wish they only kept the tweets from people that I actually follow and stop adding those tweets that I don't care about. Definitely whatever is trending. I'm not trendy. I don't care what's trending. All I care about is the people that I'm looking out to hear from. But obviously, that's the whole algorithm and it's a whole other topic. But speaking of algorithms, I think we can slowly move to the VP roulette segment. So I'm going to let you choose from one to 10, as usual, three numbers, and then we'll see what you have to say. Okay, I choose two, four, and eight. Okay, two, four, and eight. Number two. The question is, what would you do if money was not the issue? If you could do anything in the world, what would be your thing? I would be a fashion designer. (laughs) Was that one of the classes they had to cover, apart from the hairdressing and beauty? Was there also a designer class? 
I think there was a lesson called textiles, yeah, where where students had a chance to sew things and and you know and create amazing outfits. Uh, but no, it stems from the fact that I remember when I was young and uh, I would go shopping with my mom and my mom would always say, there are no shoes in the entire world that you would like. Because mm-hmm. uh, I would go to all these shops and there was nothing I actually liked. So I would like to design my own shoes and, yeah, and clothes. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know that about you. So I'm learning something. That's cool. Uh, next one was four. Yes. What are the top three things that you do for you? I do yoga. I started this um, watercolor urban sketching course on Domestica, which is quite good. Um, I actually do little bits myself and I go for long walks. Very nice. So refreshing. All of the mindful well-being practices. This This is why you're so calm and balanced. Last one, your favorite game or app on your phone. Oh, let me have a look. Do I have? I don't have any games on my phone. And this is why I say game or app, because this gaming idea is from my own industry. But most people say they're not gamers. Secretly, mm-hmm. they are, but they don't know. They're, they all live in the matrix. <laughs> sure. Um, I think Pinterest. Oh, interesting. Or- Yeah, just for, I've got many Pinterest boards, just for collecting inspiration, I guess, for anything. So if you want to decorate your house, you've got so many different things in there you can find, or if you want to do art projects. I even have got like a teaching board where I collect really good teaching activities that I could do with the students or some worksheets or yeah, things like that. Very interesting. I get overwhelmed by Twitter, but also by Pinterest. When I was redecorating my place and I tried to find some inspiration, it A, made me feel lost because there was so much of it. Then it made me feel like I wanted to live in 10 other houses because they were so beautiful. But yeah, very helpful. But I learned a lot about how you should paint your apartment to make sure that the rooms look bigger than smaller and so just the perspective and like which walls you need to paint or do you need to paint the ceiling and how and what colors that was very helpful wonderful answers caroline on all of the topics Um, i learned something new about you you're going to be a fashion designer at some point famous on pinterest doing yoga and watercoloring and walking a lot thank you so much for being on the podcast this was wonderful i'm glad that we got to talk about a topic that is very close to my heart and even closer to yours and it's very important to shed some more light on and i hope that maybe we'll get some interesting feedback and more people are going to look into trying to support the educational system, especially if their parents themselves, but also if they care about their own retirement, as I said. Absolutely. Do you have any last words? No words of wisdom from me. No, I'm done. Completely depleted after an hour and a half. We're done here. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Please reach out with your ideas on how to improve the education of children and our systems if you have any. And if not, I'll see you on another episode. Bye.